Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Growing Up 8 podcast. I'm your host, David Youngblood, and today's episode is entitled Excess But Not Unnecessary Storage, The Unspoken Value of Furniture. When you're young and just beginning to develop your own sense of global positioning, people and places begin to cement a conjoined place in your memory, and this is achieved largely through association. We can associate the holidays with visits from one person or another, and we can even begin to set up a level of expectation as that holiday inches closer. The event and the person and the place become connected. Because your experience is raw and the event infrequent in repetition, the physical space and environment of an encounter often acts like some sort of adhesive or Velcro to secure the people to a peculiar spot and environment. That was the case with our great-grandmother's couch. It wasn't naugahyde, and it wasn't exactly leather, or at least not the kind you expect on a piece of furniture, but it was something we'd never encountered before that covered our great-grandmother's couch, a couch she confessed to hating, but at the same time refused to part with. Her husband, our old papa, had purchased a cowhide sofa and was extremely proud of it. To sit on it was to be placed on the back of an actual bovine, The skin was not treated or tanned, but rather the actual raw leather that had been stretched over the frame of a sofa with minimal amounts of padding to soften the experience. The cowhide was bristly with brown and white hair that greeted your fascinated and imaginative touch. It smelled out of doors of fields and country air, and that is why old Papa loved it so. Despite his passing, the couch remained in its original place, just to the left of the front door of the old farmhouse. We would sit on it as well as on the wooden floors of this tiny two-bedroom farmhouse, ruminating about the sparse objects that adorned its front sitting room. This was our spot when we were not outdoors walking the acreage and searching for some hidden treasure never before seen by our suburban eyes. This is where we all huddled and whispered while the adults visited in the kitchen. Looking around this living room, several things stood out. The famous works of art carefully cut from magazines and taped or tacked to the walls, a family of small porcelain piglets and their sow attached by a tiny brass chain, a few scattered pictures of serious-faced country farmers and their wives, no doubt distant relatives of ours. And of course, there were the windows, heavy wooden framed windows looking out onto a front and side yard of fig and pecan trees, sometimes waiting to be harvest, harvested. The shade thrown by the broadleaf fig and the spreading pecan trees was everything needed to cool this simple, unair-conditioned home from the blistering summer, so- southern Louisiana summer. That and a tall glass of Aunt Alice's hand-squeezed lemonade. To remember our great-grandmother is to remember her in that house, In fact, I have a difficult time placing her anywhere else. Her tiny wrinkled face smiling behind thick, heavy black framed glasses. Her ancient arthritic hands like twisted oak tree roots, tying Tom's shoes after a nap. Her steady straight back shuffle, which made her look like she was floating rather than walking across the farm to take him to a visit to her sister Alice and join the rest of us after staying with him so that he could finish his nap. To remember old mamas to hear the snap bang of the screen door latched by a bent nail as she walked onto the front porch or the back porch to greet you or call you in to eat. 
Both of these would be done while shushing Grover, her ever-loyal German shepherd, a dog we feared and a dog we desperately wanted to be our friend. A dog who I did manage to befriend and follow one summer visit, not long before age and health necessitated old Mama's move to her daughter's home. The farmhouse, which was just off a curve on the state highway, is gone now, somehow absorbed back into the rugged soy and cotton fields. What remains, however, is that vision of old Mama, her head bonneted and her checkered farm dress fronted by a clean white apron. She stands on the porch telling us to come in and out uh, and put the pecans down. The corn kush-kush is just about ready in the cast iron skillet. It'll be perfect with a little milk and coffee and a bit of sugar, just the way we like it. Like our trips to Sunset, Louisiana, the journeys further south to New Orleans were also marked by specific places. Two rooms in particular were sure to find us nestled in our grandparents' home on Argonne Boulevard. The entire house smelled of the 1950s, which was an attraction enough to get us excited and dreaming weeks before an expected trip. The first room was the kitchen. In this small rectangle of a room, everything seemed covered in plastic, from the linoleum floor to the solid Formica countertops to the Formica kitchen table resting on four metal legs and placed up against the wall opposite the stove and oven. As Mozzie cooked up miracles on that stove, we monkey-faced Pawsey, hanging on to his every movement and word, waiting for his belly laugh, which was sure to encourage us to our un-uncontrolled laughter. That table, which could be slid out to accommodate visitors, was where we enjoyed numerous dozens of Sunday morning donuts, glazed and fresh and warm from McKinsey's Bakery, a generous gift from a beloved man who rose early to travel to the bakery and be the first in line even while we slept. We were there in the kitchen when he would arrive, head topped by a gray fedora and smelling of Clubman Panov, aftershave, and El Producto cigars. It was also that table where we enjoyed fresh fruit, especially bananas, brought by the fruit man to their doorstep. And sometimes you might be able to reach into the box and find the miracle of a banana pin with its yellow crescent magically floating in the liquid that topped the pin. This was the table where eight of us sat in rapt attention, absorbing every particle of this Alfred Hitchcock of a man we loved called Pawsey. As he happily ate a multi-layered Dagwood sandwich and washed it down with a cold can of Budweiser. This was a kitchen where the life pulsed, and so did we along with it, breathing in the rarefied air of humor and reciprocated love. If you didn't find us in the kitchen near the old brown radio where he listened to the Saints away games crackling through the receiver, you could probably find us again as a group huddled into the small guest bedroom where we slept as a pack. Some on the two white oak wood twin beds, some on the floor with quilts and comforters laid down for padding. This room knew more laughter than any other room I've ever been in since. Very little sleep took place in our visits to New Orleans. Instead, stories were spun and told and listened to. It was here in this room that we often visited with members of Mozzie's family, her sisters and remaining brother, especially Aunt Anna. She, more than anyone else, knew how to get us going and also knew how to cross the lines of good taste with just enough room for us to feel dangerous and free. It was in this room that Anna told us of her sister's overactive gastrointestinal system and the awkward noises it sometimes emitted. No adults ever talked to us about farting before, and this story raised the decibel level too loud. 
Mozzie came in, red-faced and angry, and Anna was banished from the bedroom, not just for the evening, but for all future visits. Like a litter of kittens, we would eventually fall asleep, no doubt listening to the muffled sounds of our two parents and grandparents in the adjoining rooms, chuckling and laughing with stories of their own. To visit New Orleans was to be in one of these rooms, and even though we enjoyed many vacations and adventures outside of the Crescent City with our grandparents, this house is where I find them in my mind's eye, and in the soft smile that crosses my lips when I call up these two generous and loving people. She will reach over and pinch my cheek and try to offer me a stick of Wrigley's mint gum, while he will offer a wink as sparkling as a new sun greeting your day. In our own homes, there were locations tied strongly to memory. The drop-leaf table where we took most of our meals, the rounded brick fireplace front where we opened Christmas gifts, warmed our feet on rare Louisiana cold spells, but mostly sat on and walked and around as we talked and told stories about our daily adventures riding bikes and playing neighborhood games of hide-and-seek or capture the flag. There was even the formal living room where we listened to Dad sing along with the hi-fi record player and sat, sat our evening family prayers around an undersized marble table coffee table. Attached to that room was the formal dining room, the place where Dad piled his papers and work, where he planned and charted our vacation trips, and where he cleaned off his materials so we could have Sunday dinner. All of these rooms were special and memory magnets, but there's no room, no matter the home, that was more attached to memories than the family den. Tuesday night was TV night in the den. In the mid-70s, it meant finishing up dinner, clearing the table, and beginning the cleanup. Just getting started, you would hear a voice, I got the right couch. Usually the call for dibs could not take place until one of the older siblings, Doug, Mike, or Mary, took the honor. Following that, it was a free-for-all for the prime real estate of the den. Oddly, more often than not, we each wound up pretty much in the same watching spot. Still, homework or a late practice or game could alter the dynamic, even throwing Dad's coveted lounger chair up for the taking. The only two the seats dibs did not seem to affect were the two youngest. John and Mark usually found one of our laps or our parents to nuzzle up to, or they would spend most of the time suspended in the air, flying arms outstretched from one pair of legs to the next. But Tuesday, above all other nights of the week, were special. Tuesdays meant happy days, and Laverne and Shirley, and MASH, and perhaps eight is enough. Try as we might, we never quite were able to see ourselves in any of the Bradford kids. The number in the title was as close as we got to family twinness. We went through several seasons as a family in several dens and several couches. It was on the couches where the imagination could really be fueled. The couches became Spanish galleons whose wooden planks were the only thing saving you from shark-infested waters. On the couch, you could plop a blanket and spend hours playing with your army men. You could spend just as much time reading a book, shifting positions as the action shifted on the pages. It was from a couch that you could watch your younger brothers playing with the latest toy, something called a weeble, which wobbled but never fell down. It was a perfect vantage spot if you found yourself indoors. One couch lasted several moves and stands out for its durability and unique texture. Perhaps it was due to its floral patterns running its length or even the solid, consistent comfort it offered over several years. It was on this couch I remember Dad gently rubbing my back as I suffered through yet another childhood migraine, 
This was the couch where Mary Catherine Tom and I played endless games of bicycle. The game was simple enough. You sat on your back with both legs turned upward and connected the soles of your feet to mimic the motion of riding a bike. The loser was the one who broke the rhythm of the ride first. Mary, as she was at most games, an excellent player. This was also the couch where if you weren't careful during the summer, you risked losing not only the hair on the back of your legs, but perhaps a layer of skin or two as well. Mom had grown weary of the continual cleaning of a household with eight energetic and active kids, and though to be sure we helped as we could, there was much that did not meet Mom's sniff test. She was constantly looking for innovations to make the monumental task of housework efficient. From towel racks to bath partners to wall charts, Mom searched, tested, and implemented and managed to keep the house running cleanly and blood-free for the most part. One of her finds was vinyl. A vinyl surface was easily cleaned and durable under heavy use. And it was not just for floors or kitchen surfaces. Our new couch had a blue and purple flower pattern with the blooms intertwining in an aesthetically pleasing pattern. It also kept a slight shine as light streamed from the window. That shine should have tipped us off. But of course, we were too young and too undereducated to posit any possible hypothesis, much less incorporate the scientific method. To an outsider, it was the perfect large family couch. A closer look would have discovered its one true weakness, absorption, or rather, its inability to absorb. When coming inside after a hard day summer play, it was logical to look for a cool, comfortable place to rest, the family couch. It was the perfect way station where you could cool down, catch your breath, and focus yourself for the next adventure, or at least so you would hope. This had been our experience for most of the cloth furniture of our past. Unknown to us, vinyl-covered cushion seats don't breathe. Neither do they absorb sweat. Instead, the liquid pools in the indentures and valleys of the cushion. A hard day session outdoors might raise your body temperature to well above the normal 98.7. The heat transfer from your physical body to the plastic product coupled with the suction effect of the pooled liquid and the airtight seal caused by your seated body could be a deadly combination. This meant that the back of your legs never had an opportunity to cool, and you ran a real risk of losing your leg hair through the suction effect caused by trying to get up from the seat. Of course, any hair or skin loss could easily be wiped away with a damp sponge and a little soap. Mom loved the cleanup and the loss of the lingering odor of smelly seat cushions. Kids suffered from the efficiency. To avoid the pain and shame of this, one had to remember to sit with your bare legs completely off the surface of the cushion. This gave the effect that you were a good listener, since your body was always leaning forward. As Italians, we prided ourselves in our virility and our dark Mediterranean features. But to have hairy legs is both a blessing and a curse especially in the sweltering humidity of the Gulf Coast. I'm, not quite, I'm quite sure Machiavelli's prince never came close to encountering the vinyl phenomena. Had his mother had vinyl-covered chairs, it's more likely his famous prince would never have risen to power. It is a pitiable sight indeed today to see me or any of my brothers caught midair as we dive into a pool as adults, the bright sunlight reflecting grossly off the back of our ultra-white and prematurely hairless legs. The couch was pretty to look at. We were not. 
Now, as I sit in my own back porch in the early morning hours, rocking and enjoying the first cup of coffee amid the early hour buzz of life and sunlight, I am transported back to those memories and those rooms and their furnishings. All of them are there before me, all of the places and the rooms and the people too. And there beside me are Charlie and Julia, Edith and Jackie and Ray and Irma and Doug, along with Wilfred and Victoria, and each and every one of my brothers and sisters and cousins, as well as my own family. We're all there on the porch together, occupying the spaces and places that belong to us and define so much of our happiness. I can see the laughter and hear the smiles. But on my back porch, we don't speak. We sit and smile. We are in familiar and comfortable spots. We are home here, together as we have ever been.